Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that did make it. I'm Hilary B. Visniaks. Listeners, I'm beyond thrilled to have back on the show uh, the author of the Kingston Cycle, of the Midnight Bargain, and now of, even though I knew the end, World Fantasy Award-winning author C.L. Polk. C., welcome back to the show. Hi, hello, hello, hi, yes, I am here. I'm, I'm so thrilled to have you back on the show. Like, cannot express, I really, like, you know, 2021 was a year, as <laughs> was, was 2020, <laughs> and I just couldn't get you on here for The Midnight Bargain, but... What a book to be returning for a somewhat belated but well-deserved book tour. Uh, Before we get into the reading, is there anything that folks should know about Even Though I Knew the End before we uh, start? Which I just said those words again. (laughs) Okay, so... Even though I knew the end is a novella, and that basically means that you're going to have an immersive experience for about the space of an afternoon, and then you're going to be done. It's going to like basically pick you up, hug you, and let you go. Um, and like I kind of think that that's advantage an advantage right now. Like I simply cannot face epic tomes at this mm-hmm. point. Um, and I've been reading a lot of novellas, and I have a real appreciation for the fact that you can get in it, and it's like the books are so absorbing and neat and so tidy and so easy to finish. I just I get this hip, hit of dopamine. It's like, I read a whole book, yay! They are the perfect thing for my autistic burnout right now. Yeah, like, I don't know. I, I, I could talk too much about this book, really. <laughs> like, it's, like I said, it's a novella, um, and the process that I used to create it is a little bit different from everything mm-hmm. else. Maybe we can talk about that in a bit. Um, but what I really loved was kind of the exercise in, like, the writing voice. Like, the mm-hmm. author, the narrator's voice is so much fun. And so I want to read some of it to you, if I can. Yes. All right. All right, so I'm going to read Act 1, Scene 3. It was so late by then, I was sure I'd missed out. I hurried to the wink on the edge of the near north side. I walked into a dim saloon that smelled of spilled beer and kept on through to the back as if I were headed for the poker den that ran seven nights a week. But before anyone could spot me, I cut left into an alcove that held a model closet and another door. Hmm. I knocked the right rhythm, not shaving a haircut, but close. I stood still as the people opened and a light flashed in my eyes. The wall opened, and Sylvia let me onto the landing before a long flight of stairs leading down into the earth. Evening, beautiful. You're late. (laughs) 
I shook her hand in greeting, leaving a quarter in her palm. I should have brought flowers. How's Moira? She smiled with pride. Moira's got her suit on tonight, playing horn up at WGN. Good gig. Tell her hi, gorgeous, will you? She'll be here later, and you can tell her yourself. She glanced at the bulge under my left arm. Check your iron? Will do. I passed under the light of a pendant lamp to creak my way down the stairs into a damp, creosote-smelling tunnel. I was late, but Edith was still here. Sylvia would have read me the riot act otherwise. Distant music echoed down the hallway, and I stopped at the coat check to smile at the new girl behind the counter. Her hair is shiny with brilliant pine, her second-hand black tux outfit just a touch too big. She held out her hands for my coat and hat. She packed up my persuader in a locker without batting an eyelash and gave me a chick. I didn't bother taking off the holster. I feel strange without it. Mm-hmm. I turned to meet the gentle press of fingertips on my shoulder, my flight or fight kicking up before I could put my smile back on. Just a cigarette gal, silly. Who else would it be? <laughs> you need cigarettes, Helen? Mitzi. Well, that wasn't really her name. Clicked ring fingers over the tray. I tipped a nickel and kissed her rouge cheek. You look gorgeous, doll. She fluttered her hands and shooed me away. Go break some other girl's heart, you wicked broad. <laughs> I grinned and swept open the beaded curtain to the wink. Chicago had loved us once, and the strays had packed into the deluxe cafe and the old 1230 club to come scandalously close to the queer. The cops cracked down on the pansy clubs in 1935, and these days, Chicago didn't love our kind at all. Somebody found this place at the end of the Great War and the beginning of the Great Experiment and put a bar in. After Prohibition and gallons of blood washing up the gutters of Chicago, this place draped itself in dust and waited for Betty Donahue and her wife Willie to discover it themselves. They established the passwords two Halloweens ago, and we all planned to take its secret to our graves. The wink was long and narrow, its chipped brick walls lined with cozy horseshoe booths. Real crystal chandeliers, mismatched, bless every one of them, <laughs> glittered through a fog of cigarette smoke. They hung down the center of the room, leading the way past the long, well-stocked bar to a round-edged stage where Miss Francine swayed in a glittering blue gown and sang, I've got you under my skin. The room was full of women. Don't let the double-breasted suits and slick-back hair fool you. Hmm. The wink was a haven of women gathered in clumps or cuddled around a special companion, whether they wore starch-collared skirts or satin and sequins. The Friday night women of the wink could make free, drinking and laughing, eyeing each other the way they'd never dare on the street. I wound through the standing crowd, headed for my usual place at the end of the bar. A highball sat fizzing next to my empty chair, and beside it sat Luke Jaroski, listening to the songbird up on the stage. She'd waited for me. I glanced at my wristwatch. Forty-five minutes, and she'd waited. She had her pinstripe jacket on, the shoulders sharp-angled and fashionable, her scarf hung neatly on the back of her chair. She had one last sip of bourbon in her glass. That's how close I cut it. Her neck was bare, the hair lopped off in a tumble of curls so artful I longed to mess it up. <laughs> Edith. I stopped just to look at her in profile, at the way she picked up her heavy bottom glass and looked in on her last sip. 
the one she'd lingered over, waiting for me. But I stayed where I was. I wanted this moment to see her, to fill my memories with her, to feel how it ached so sweet and bitter in my chest to see her one more time before I had to button all that up and put on a smile. She turned her head and looked right at me. Smile. Smile. But as I gazed at her and she at me, something fluttered in the shadow of her face. My heart jumped. In my mind, a metal door slammed shut. Smile. Smile. Edith beckoned to me and I came, helpless as a fish on the hook, but glad, so glad to be caught. She put her hand on the polished bar top and I laid mine over hers, twining our fingers together. I love you, Edith. I love you so much. I thought it until it echoed inside my ears. You're late. I'm sorry, baby. 45 more minutes I could have had with her. I've been chasing this mess of a job. I didn't need the $50. I had enough put away. It would keep Edith for a little while. I wish I had more. She leaned over and let me taste the bourbon on her lips. You smell like pictures. You get a job? A consultation. Yeah? Her eyes were bright, excited. Object or people? It's too hot, baby. I'm turning it down. <laughs> I tossed bourbon and coke over my tonsils, leaving an empty glass next to hers. The bourbon sat warm and fuzzy in my middle as I slid off the seats. Ain't this our song? Ada smiled at me through her sand brown curls. You say that about all the love songs. That's because they're ours. Come on, dance with me. She let me pull her to the tiny patch of floor in front of the stage. I blew Miss Francine a kiss she caught in her hand without missing a note, and then I folded into Edith's arms. We danced the first night we met when Edith was still stumbling to lead, but she wanted to dance the next night we met. And every night we spent at the wink after that, she eased me into an inside turn, and I came back to her arms, easy as breathing. I have something to tell you. Edith brimmed up with news as I spilled forth in a grim that showed her gums. There's an opening at Kaysen. The station manager called me. Edith's life was a series of call signs and station identifiers I could hardly keep straight, but I knew that one. All the way from San Francisco? Her smile sparkled brighter than chandeliers. Just like we wanted. If I take the job, it'll start in a month. A month. Oh, but it hurt. I wanted to go west years before, but there wasn't enough money. Edith had a good job at WMAQ as a sound engineer. She was the only woman sound engineer in the whole state. And she wouldn't move away to take a lesser job as a switchboard operator or a coffee-fetching typist. And I'd never ask her to. San Francisco was the stuff of dreams. But we stayed in Chicago where we could afford the rent. But now the stars are not. Now she could go. Oh, that scene gives me so many feelings again. And again, again, it. Oh, ah, what a book! What a book! I. Uh, so I know that this, as we uh, discussed a little bit before we uh, went on air, as it were. Uh, I know that this book had a little bit of an unconventional start. 
Uh, but, you know, this is a bit of an unconventional show, so I'm wondering, are there any bits that you absolutely adored out of this book that just didn't make it to the physical copy that you can go and purchase from fine bookstores everywhere? Well, okay, so, I mean, the thing about this book, I don't know, it was weird, right? Because, um... When I got the when I I got the hankering to write this kind of this thing, I had this picture, um, and I was like looking at the picture, and I was like, I want to write a story with like these two characters dressed like this. Like I just want to do like a, a like a '40s detective agency sort of idea, and I it was like, well, that's a neat idea, but I kept thinking mm-hmm. about it, but I wasn't thinking about the plot so much as I was thinking about. Like, well, you know, I would want to set it here and I want it to be like this and I would want this and I would, you know, when I just kind of like ran down everything that I kind of wanted, like all in my head. And then I was like, okay, let's outline as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And usually when I say what's well, outline as much as I can, I grab a stack of index cards and I just write down like the scenes that are in my head that are like the most powerfully there mm-hmm. and they aren't nearly enough to like outline the whole book not nearly enough but what happened was is i had so many scenes i just kind of wrote them down and i, I knew like the sequence of order that they had to come in and the next thing i know i was writing scenes to fill in the information that went like in between the cards i already had and mm-hmm. the next thing i knew i had 26 index cards 27 yeah. index cards and they were every single scene in the story every single one <sighs> laid out perfectly like a beat by beat it's the most detailed outline i have ever done <laughs> i love and this for you <laughs> it was so great and so like i had this collection of scenes and so what i did was i was like well i obviously know the story i gotta get to work right so i just started like burning through the cards mm-hmm. one after the other i wrote it in an incredibly short period of time but i was obsessed so i worked on it for many hours mm-hmm. so i wrote it nine days but i was like working on it for six hours every day trying to get it done and like every time i hit something where i was like wait what is the answer to this research question i would stop and i would go find out the answer and i was so set on the story but I would mm-hmm. find out the answer and I would come back and write it immediately. I didn't rabbit hole wow. like at all. I know. I know. So weird. I was so driven to get this whole story out. And so what I ended up with was this voicey, incredibly tight, and like weirdly, like in the moment, meticulously researched, like down to the last detail mm-hmm. kind of a story. Like there was, um, there is a, a scene where Helen and Edith are in a diner and it's Sunday night and there's a Red Wings game on the radio. There was mm-hmm. a Red Wings game on the radio. That was the game. I found a newspaper article that had the play-by-play. I knew minute by minute what was happening in the game. So when the people in the kitchen yelled scores, it was at exactly the time that the Red Wings scored their second goal against the Black. Like, oh, I just... love this for you. <laughs> and and so like like everywhere there was like like I had to stop and research something every few pages or so. Mm-hmm. But like it just it was like magical, right? Because it was like I need the answer for this. And I would find it. 
it was so great. Like I couldn't do it now. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but and so then I wrote it, and then I was like, you know, exhausted because I had finished this story and I knew it was really good, and I couldn't wait to show it to people because here is the secret that we haven't been talking about mm-hmm. for like since the book came out. This was originally a supernatural fanfic. <laughs> Helen was Dean, Ted was Sam, and, well, it wasn't Castiel, it was Jimmy Novak, but, like, (laughs) it's a little bit complicated. You have to actually read the story in order to figure it out, but if you know Supernatural, you will know exactly what I am talking about when you read the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. It's just, like, and I put it on AO3, and I expected, like... It was stupid of me to expect this, but I had expected after like previous fanfics that I had written that mm-hmm. what was going to happen was is that everybody was going to jump on it and that I was going to get the usual like, oh yeah, I read this, this was really great, blah, 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 you know, like, you know, like, don't be a dumbass, don't go in there, that sort <laughs> of thing, like the comment, the comment on every single entry kind of, kind of thing. And what happened was, is it sank like a stone. Because oh. it was written in first person, like a stone. Like a few people did read it, and they really, really liked it. But I got a lot of, "Why did you write this in first person?" As soon as I saw that it was first person, I backed out immediately. I don't want to read. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's the, it's hard boiled detective fiction. Yeah, that, that's what it is. That's how person. it do. That's the point. That that's the literary kit. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't want to read first person. Ew, yuck. Uh-huh. I, like, I hate everything. Why has this happened to me? This is the best thing I have ever written, and nobody will read it because the narrator talks about themselves in the first person. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! And so, like, I was so bummed out. I took it down. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so it was literally sitting in a trunk for years, for years, until it was like, "Hey, do you have anything I can publish?" I'm like the only thing I have, and this is absolutely ridiculous, and I said what it was, I was like, do you think you can scrape the serial numbers off of it? (laughs) I can try, right? And then I thought, okay, well, this is good enough, right? Like, there's a certain amount of this that is just going to have to be the way it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was okay, because Supernatural is like the war in heaven in apocryphal Bible fanfiction anyway. Like knowing so this, I just kind of let it be. It makes so much sense, and it also <laughs> like every single twist and turn just like had me alternately like gasping, wanting to bother my partner about it, and knowing like she hasn't read this, she won't like. <laughs> I can't. I can't spoil this, or right? laughing out loud, just like maniacal laughing my head off (laughs) it just and I I also 100% feel you on the like having written a fanfic that like I, I wrote a fanfic this year probably I think one of my best works ever and it is in such a small fandom that, like, it has it has views, it has kudos, it has the best ratio of views to kudos I've gotten on anything, but the fandom is, like, eight people, 
<laughs> and oh that's just God. what it is. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just write a fan thing that's like, this is for me and my nine goblin friends. Yeah. And, like, I do it a lot. I, I did it a lot. I did it for the magicians. I, like, wrote magicians fanfic. And it was like, this is for me and and my friends in this one Discord server. I just mm-hmm. want to amuse them. And so I was writing this thing. And, like, That's... I don't really think it, it got any, like, notice outside of, like, me and my nine goblin friends in the Discord. But it was super enjoyable to write. Yeah. That, that honestly... That's the best fanfic to write, is the one where you're just writing it for nine specific people who are going to cackle at you being on your behavior, because it's also them on their behavior. Oh, yeah. I just, like, there was a scene actually late in the thing, because it wound up exploding into, like, this whole novel, where (laughs) I posted it, and people came back to me, and they were like, Quentin Coldwater as a Disney princess. Did you really do that? I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, I did. All of the animals in the forest came to see what the hell he was up to. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Um, oh, so good. Oh. So there, there is. I feel like this is such a hard book to talk about in a lot of ways without spoiling things but right do you have a favorite piece and i know also you know this was a supernatural fanfic that went up on ao3 bombed and got taken down do you have any bits that you just adore out of this uh that made it in that you really want people to get to but that aren't spoilers Oh my gosh. Okay. Let me just, I'm just going to open it to a random page and see if it's correct. <laughs> um, okay. So like, all right, I've just found this bit. Uh, one of the things that's going on with this novella is that like, there's a thing that happened in the backstory mm-hmm. 10 years before. Um, and that uh, like, there's, like I have to refer back to it a couple of times, but there is a moment where um, I talk about that moment 10 years ago that basically made it so that this story had to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a line, I just have to find it. I'm just going to keep pattering as I try to figure out where the heck it is. <laughs> Cause I think it's in act two. I think it might be in act two. Uh, no, 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 no. It is late in Act 1. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, once upon a time, I crawled out of the ruin of an overturned car and didn't stop until I lay gasping on my back in the middle of an icy Ohio crossroads. Huge flakes of snow hit my face as I called out to the devil, desperate to bring my family back, desperate enough to give anything. I called to the devil, and the devil came to me. It's just this this Ugh. image, right? Like you can see it, right? Like Kim Manners is right there. Like okay, mm-hmm. I'll get up on the crane so the camera is way up high on this dirt road somewhere in Langley. Yeah. <laughs> right. Trail of like this this trail of blood 
across the snowy road from this like turned over old tiny car and mm-hmm. there's like helen like laying in the middle of the crossroads on her back she doesn't have any spell components nothing all she has is desperation and need and the snow is falling on her face as she calls the devil and it's just like ah, it's oh. just, oh, it makes me all jiggly <laughs> it's so good i remember vividly reading that and like feeling that scene seeing that scene so good so good i think this is probably like my most kind of cinematic book mm-hmm. like the way that i kind of go through it and the way that i'm like narrating it and like you know going into scenes and stuff i'm trying really really hard to like build this this almost like this shot by shot film in other people's heads like i know precisely what i want them to hallucinate mm-hmm. and i'm working very hard to make that happen <laughs> yeah well my opinion you carried it off like this is Yay! i I will say, like, I am a sucker, hardcore, since birth, pretty much, for film noir, for the noir detective genre, uh, in, in, in no par- small part because of uh, growing up on Guy Noir, Private Eye, on Prairie Home Companion. But, mm-hmm. like, if you're gonna get somebody into noir, like, there are way worse ways... Uh, I did adore, I think it's even on the first page, the callback to Philip Marlowe. Because you can't, you can't not. I I couldn't not. Like, basically (laughs) the whole thing was that I was like, okay, Raymond Chandler, hold my gin and watch this. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And the, the, the moment... Listeners, you're just going to have to read this book to get to it, because I'm not going to spoil it, but the moment where the title comes through in the prose fucking broke me. It was incredible. (laughs) I, like, I had to put the book down and stare at the wall for a minute after that moment. Oh my goodness. Like, I just... The thing is, is that's that particular part that you're talking about. That was one of those moments where I was like typing as quickly as I can. And I can't <laughs> type very fast. I'm kind of clumsy, right? But I was typing as fast as I can because the words were just like, they were right there, mm-hmm. right there. Like, I, I do not think like there's like an entire page there that has not changed except for the names like one little bit and that was like basically it like there was something about that and when i hit that line that became the title drop i was like i stopped went to the top of the thing (laughs) took out the code name and put that in as the title like that was it (laughs) love that love that for you um so we we have been talking uh this this episode listeners you're going to be hearing this in february but this is a 2022 release by far my favorite novella of 2022 uh do you want to take a moment to uh tell our listeners who maybe 
you know, they've they've seen your name around, probably, but maybe mm-hmm. they haven't read either the Kingston Cycle or the Midnight Bargain before, uh, and just just give them a an elevator pitch on both of those uh, that series and that standalone. Okay, so the Kingston Cycle is a trilogy, and it basically goes like this: um, a dying man begs the physician who tried to save him to solve his murder. And then a monarchy falls. Yeah. Um, And there's good labor politics in it. Yeah. And, and that's like, basically it is like, I like wrote this story about a regime change, but like most of it was like, Basically, it was, like, one guy who was, like, born to power and privilege went, you know what, fuck this, and, like, (laughs) left. Like, just ducked out. Like, literally faked his death Mm -hmm. so that he could go and, like, train his magical ability, which he has to keep a secret, um, so that he could be a physician. And, like, all the thanks he got for that. Um, And that, like... It starts out like page two, there's a medical emergency. Page four, the dude is dying and he's like, solve my murder. And yeah. the protagonist is like, yes, I will. I promise. And then, and then, yeah. And then a government falls as a result. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what a string of dominoes. Just yeah, incredible. It really is the domino meme. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, that's the Kingston cycle. Um, if you've ever seen the books in in the bookstore, like right next to him, one is blue, one is purple, one is pink. This is not an accident. This is not um, an accident. This is not an accident. This is like three different ways you can have a bisexual romantic relationship. Um, and those are not all of the ways that you can have a, a bisexual romantic relationship. It's just mm-hmm. three of them. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't know. I just like it. Like every book switches protagonists, but the whole trilogy is basically the story about the capital of Eland, Kingston, and mm-hmm. about like its government and its system and about how it changes. Um, Adore the series. A, yeah, there's a like there's like so much like everybody talks about the bicycle chase in book one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a bicycle chase in book one. Um, in book two, we have a protagonist who basically has to be like trapped in a corner and like basically given food. It's like, you cannot move from the spot until you eat this kind of stuff. Like just basically a very busy person. The Mm -hmm. second book's thing is that I pulled off the, there was only one bed trope in a mansion (laughs) with many, many bedrooms. (laughs) Just because that's what I wanted to do. I also pulled off the woman in a tuxedo at the Royal Ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boy, you, did you? Like, I don't know. It's fun. It's fun. Um, there's a there's a, a call out tribute and an I love you to an American werewolf in London. And when you see it, you'll know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Soul Star is the last book. Um, basically, Soul Star. The last book is about the woman who get things done and avoids the credit mm-hmm. suddenly being like cornered into leading a political movement 
not being the secretary assistant of the person leading the political movement has to actually lead the political movement. And she isn't all the way comfortable with that, but she's mm-hmm. got to do it anyway, because nobody else will. Um, Robin gets shit so done. Yeah, um, all, all three of the books have murder mysteries in them. All three of the books have like light romance plots in them. Um, all three of the books are mad at capitalism. Mm-hmm. And that's like the Kingston cycle. Um, the Midnight Bargain is uh, a novel that I wrote basically um, big hair, big dresses, spirit summoning reproductive rights. That's mm-hmm. the Midnight Bargain. Um, basically, I kind of like I knew I wanted to write a story about a young woman who didn't want the life that she was supposed to want which was basically be pretty uh go to like the equivalent of the marriage season mm-hmm. and go find like the best husband to chivo she can get <laughs> um she didn't want to do that she wanted to be a magician so she was kind of like hermy and rural redness reindeer she wanted to be a dentist um and so I knew I wanted that, but I was just kind of like, you know, there's an ingredient missing. I don't know what, I don't know what I need, but cause I want this, like, I don't want to do these things. I want to be a magician. And I'm like, okay, but like, why can't she be like, mm-hmm. what's the problem? Why can't she just be like, no, I'm just going to go do this. I'm going to run away and join the circus, the magic circus as it were. And like, I didn't know for a while. And, and then, and then like, terrible laws were enacted in three states in two days that basically like technically made Roe versus Wade like not even a thing in those states anymore and I was absolutely furious and the rest of the book just dropped in my head at that point I knew why Mm -hmm. she couldn't just go be a magician and the thing is is that like the thing that infuriates me about the midnight bargain the very very most is that I had to come up with a much and actually like okay, I see your point, reason for why women couldn't have reproductive control over their own bodies. Mm -hmm. I had to come up with a reason that actually made sense. And it just makes me so angry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I overheard somebody telling somebody else, please read The Midnight Bargain because the Supreme Court doesn't want you to. Mm -hmm. Um, And... um, Basically, it's like I wanted to write a book with like ornate middle to late 18th century fashion and big hair, that whole like Baroque freaking Rococo style kind of Mm -hmm. thing. But I also wanted to write a a book about all of the historical romances that I love so much about, you know, we're going to go to the London season and we're going to go to (laughs) All Max and we're going to go to this dance and we're going to go to these house parties and we're going to have hijinks and we're going to get married. kind of thing like i i also wanted to write that so and and i also wanted to write about a magical system where what made you a magician is not your ability with magic but your ability to do a very specific thing which was Mm -hmm. to summon spirits to do things for you Mm -hmm. and so i wanted that that whole kind of a thing where it was like i want to summon a spirit who does the thing for me and then as I was writing it, I wound up kind of developing this thing where um, 
I was like, well, you know, what does the spirit get out of the deal? And so I was like, okay, so spirits were never people. Mm -hmm. They don't have bodies. They exist in a plane where they're basically like floating in a void of nothing. And that like, they don't really like, they they become kind of minimally conscious Mm -hmm. until somebody calls them. And then they remember that there is a world out there, a world of sensation and experience that they desperately want. And that spirits, you know, they want to be in a body. They want to be a body. They want to eat. They want to dance. They want to get drunk. They want to have sex. They want to do <laughs> all of the things that we just do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that like my point of inspiration for this was a book that I loved and then hated. <laughs> <laughs> And it was this absolutely screwed up many generations saga book that Anne Rice wrote in the <laughs> 80s called The Witching Hour. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is like it's deeply twisted gothic. It's screwed up. There's like inbreeding in the whole thing. But I love this book until I got to like the last 50 pages. <sighs> and then I was so angry. <laughs> I was so 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 angry because i just didn't feel like i just didn't feel like like it wasn't oh i just i oh, it made me mad <laughs> so i basically what i needed to do was i needed a spirit who was like that's their deal that's what they want but instead of it being like this big mysterious we don't know why this spirit blah 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 i wanted it right out there spirits want mm-hmm. bodies they want they want earthly material fleshly experiences and they will do just about anything to get it. And so I wind up in the situation where I have a protagonist who is like basically allowing a spirit to ride shotgun in her mm-hmm. body in order to do the magic, which is not the way that other people do it. Usually. Mm-hmm. Like that's not usually what happens. Um, but she's like, basically is like, you know, get in loser. We're going conjuring. (laughs) (laughs) And and like Nadi is like, Nadi is a simple person. Nadi wants to have a good time and Nadi wants to hex anybody who gets into Beatrice's way because Mm -hmm. getting into Beatrice's way is getting into Nadi's way. (laughs) Love it. So it just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not quite what you would expect. I have this thing that I do where I write these stories where, you know, there's a lot of like cozy, lighthearted, fun kind of thing. But if you look at it, you're like, wait a minute, this is actually horrific. Uh What do you, what do you mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, love those books. Love those books. Um, Mm. While while we're talking about things that we love, uh, real quick before we go, have there been any uh, books, m- other media, games, anything that you've been consuming lately that you are just dying to tell people about? Okay, Surprise! so um, uh, I gotta say, all right. So there was this old video game that I loved in nineteen ninety four called Masters of Magic, and there's a reissue. Mm-hmm. And I am so excited. I'm so happy. I know it's already out, but I have to wait. 
and so like i'm like anticipating doing that um i'm also like a huge dragon age fan so i'm like waiting mm-hmm. for dread wolf every time somebody mentions something about new dread wolf news i'm like oh no i need to know what's happening um so of course i am slowly watching the um the netflix series i've only watched like the first two episodes because it's like two episodes a week with a couple of my friends were doing watch alongs mm-hmm. um and so i watched watched the first two episodes and i'm like oh no what's gonna happen and i'm like very happy about that um i like am reading the spare man by mary robinette koa and i wanted to read it because it's kind of got that same feel of that like mid-century Mm-hmm. um detective story kind of thing except it's a very different kind of thing than even though i knew the end because of course it's happening on the um uss Lindgren, which is a spaceship that is headed to mars but it's not a really a spaceship so much as it is a giant cruise ship in space mm-hmm. and so it's a very it's very different it's like this very gracious kind of mid-century cocktail hour kind of thing um a little bit of that silver screen that I have going on, even though I knew the end, but where mine is very shadowed, this is very much like drama mm-hmm. slash, like a little bit more lighthearted, except, except, except <laughs> um, the protagonist, Tesla Crane, um, was in an accident in the backstory and it has left her physically disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, she has chronic pain. Um, she has mobility issues and all of these other things, but she has a, a, a scientific doodad in her head that is a deep brain stimulator that helps her deal with the pain. And here's the thing. She can dial it all the way so that she can't feel anything and suffer all of the consequences of that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I noticed and I really, really, really like, I wasn't thinking about it until I was almost all the way through the book and I realized I was like, wait a minute, hold on a second. Tesla does this thing and it's bothering the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why is because I do it too. And it's that she spends so much time and so much energy on not appearing to be disabled to other people, not because she doesn't, like she's trying to deny that she's disabled but she is trying to not intrude on other people's experiences of her mm-hmm. with it she's trying to hold it back because she knows that she basically she has to she can't actually show it it's like i can't like when i'm having a major panic attack i can't say to people it's like i am having a major panic attack i have to go right i have mm-hmm. to cushion them from the reality of my disability and tesla crane spends so much time cushioning other people and i just want her to just not do that Uh (laughs) or at least not do it as much as she does it um i want her to be able to say i am having a bad pain day i have to go Mm -hmm. and like and then everyone accepts that she is having a bad pain day and she has to go. But Tesla Crane, for all that she's in the future, is living in an ableist society. And when I figured it out, I was so mad. <laughs> I was so mad. So, yeah, um, I am thinking about that. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
It is if if folks have not read any of the Lady Na- Astronaut from Mars books, uh, I think that the Spare Man is a great jumping on point because, mm-hmm. like, the first three books in the series are basically like the first two books you have to read as a set. The third book you could read as a standalone. I personally wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But, like, this one does not depend on the Lady Astronaut in the way that the others do. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure it's the same universe. Like, it's the same kind of retro-future SF thing that I think Mm -hmm. is super cool Um, and stuff. So it's definitely got that that style. So if you, you know, if you read The Calculating Stars and you haven't read The Fading Sky, I'm not going to shame you. And I'm not even going to say that I'm disappointed. I realize that there are so many good books out there mm-hmm. and it is impossible to get them all because we don't have time bubbles where we can read books. Which is <laughs> um, frankly ableist and rude. Right? It really is ableist and rude. Um, but like the Spearman is like so, it's so neat. Like you should, it's so cool. you should read it. And if you haven't actually read any of the Lady Astronaut series, go ahead and read the Spare Man. Like it, it stands out there on its own, um, and it's it's a good time. And when you get to the part where you find out why slash how Tesla wound up with a chronic pain condition, don't drive, don't operate heavy machinery, don't mm-hmm. do anything where you have to be able to see because you will cry. Okay, I'm done now. Go buy the book. <laughs> Buy this book. It will make you cry. Oh. On that note, <laughs> see, it's it's been so good having you back on the show. Where can our listeners find you elsewhere on the internet? I used to have a really good pat response for this, and now it's ruined. It's fucking um, Elon Musk. Stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid person. Why did he do that? What a dumbass. I have absolutely no idea how this part of the podcast is going to read in February. But we're going to find out. We're going to find out. As of of today, I would say that the best thing that you can do is go to my website, which is clpolk.com, and see my books and figure out what the heck I'm doing. There are links so that you can find out what else I'm doing. I am currently talking to people on the internet on Mastodon. I am on the server Wandering Shop. So at CLPolk at Wandering.shop. That's where I am on Mastodon. Um, And like, that's pretty much the place you need to talk to me if you want me to talk back. Like I don't, I am a very indifferent Instagram user. I am Mm -hmm. the worst TikToker in the entire world. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, that's where I am. Um, because I used to be at the other place, the blue bird place. But mm-hmm. now I'm like, no, no, I have walked away. I'm not going there anymore. Somebody uh-huh. has to fix it before I come back. Nobody's going to fix it. <laughs> I, yeah, we're, we're recording this in uh, mid to late December. Mm-hmm. The elongated muskrat just did some things over the weekend. Uh, I have uh, no it, idea what every, anything is going to look like tomorrow, let alone in February. Day. 
it's sort of like, well, this place is a train wreck. I can't see how it would get any worse. And then the next day, well, this is a train wreck. I don't see how it could get worse. <laughs> like, it's just as terrible. It's, it's, I would say it's like Groundhog Day, but it is something different every day. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, well, see, thank you from the nearby the bottom of my heart for coming on the show. It has been such a delight. Uh, truly one of the best ways to round out season four of this podcast, which sounds absolutely tremendously fake. Oh, no, it's not fake at all. It's totally <laughs> happening. You did all of it. I did all of it. Listeners, <laughs> tune in again in two weeks when my very last guest of the season will be Amy Ogden. Yay! Woo! Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. Provided it still exists, you can find the show on Twitter, at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBisniex. You can also find me at HBBisniex at wandering.shop. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Don't self-reject.